Welcome, everybody, to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by thehockeythinktank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today. Jeff and I were just talking before the intro and honestly think this was our best one yet. We bring on Stanley Cup champion Chris Butler onto the podcast. And oh my God, what an unbelievable conversation we had with him. But a little bit about his background before we do get over to the conversation. Uh, Butts grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, ended up playing his USHL junior hockey in Sioux City for the Musketeers before going on to play three years at the University of Denver. Uh, After his time at the University of Denver, he went on to play 407 NHL games for the Buffalo Sabres, Calgary Flames, and the St. Louis Blues. Uh, He's been a captain at the AHL level for both the San Antonio Rampage and the Chicago Wolves. Unbelievable leader, unbelievable NHL career, and you can certainly tell on this podcast conversation how that is. But before we do get over to Chris, let's bring on the talent of the podcast, Jeff Lavecchio. Jeff, what is shaking today? Tell you what, Toph, I'm getting pretty excited right now. My voice is slowly starting to come back. I hit 210 on the scales today, so I'm getting lean and mean and tight and right again now that all my <laughs> my pro and junior and college guys are all starting to slowly leave. I get a little more time in my day. I'm starting to get ripped, R-I-P-T. That's my company name again, so I'm pretty happy right now. And then on top of that, dude, this podcast that we just recorded, I think this is episode 65, I believe, maybe 66. I know we say it a lot. But I honestly think that this one with Chris Butler was top one, top two, top three podcasts we've recorded. I loved everything this guy said. And it's really cool to have on, you know, as we talk about all the time, it's very easy to look up to Patrick Kane. It's very easy to look up to Connor McDavid for what their abilities are. Chris Butler maximized everything he had. And yes, he was a very, very, very good hockey player, but he wasn't a superstar. And he was able to play 470 some odd games in the NHL, um, finish it off with the Stanley Cup, 250 plus games in the American League. Like what a career, what a person. Yeah, man. Like I remember just halfway through the episode, I I think I even might've said it on the episode. I'm like, I'm just going to play this on repeat (laughs) just for myself, (laughs) just to kind of like learn and, and, uh, just feel better and and all that kind of stuff. Like he came on hot with some unbelievable, just perspective, unbelievable knowledge. And, uh, it was cool too, because it got to just his journey, but then it also got to some hilarious stories about some of his professional teammates. Uh, it got to just some advice that he would have for younger players and coaches and and just the whole thing was just it was really awesome yeah I totally agree I mean I remember like probably 12 to 15 minutes in I looked at you and I and I mouthed like this is good yeah like I was like wow like Butsy is killing it and he's a very genuine person a very good speaker like I mean he wow like you know I've known him for a long time like I wouldn't say like we were like really tight by any means I'm older than him um, but we'd skate a lot in the summers coming up and you know we're playing college and pro and juniors you know play against each other whatever I mean wow a a great perspective and I think that it I I honestly think that this would be a great podcast for kids and, and parents and coaches 
but I think higher level guys could get a ton out of this junior college, even AHL, NHL, European pros. I think they could get a ton of information and learn a lot from what Butts said. Yeah, for sure. And coaches too. I think uh, coaches, at the high, I mean, you get in the perspective of a guy who played in so many games uh, at the professional level and he talks about some of the coaches that he had and specifically when he was talking about Craig Berube, I mean, that was really interesting to hear him talk about just how he took over that locker room in St. Louis and changed the culture and, and I, th- I thought the part of it that was really cool was just how he taught them to kind of just believe in themselves again and having belief in yourself is, is everything and uh, for a guy to do that for a team that was last place in the NHL and to get them to win the Stanley Cup. I mean, is there any better storyline? Is there any more miraculous thing than than that? I don't think so. Or more motivating. I mean, confidence is confidence is literally everything you know and i mean butts even said it like you know he went to juniors at 150 160 pounds didn't didn't play a ton didn't play a lot of situations maybe that first year but he worked out he worked hard you know he learned from the vets put on 20 pounds which is absolutely insane and all of a sudden now he's getting drafted the next year like and that all i believe stems from confidence of putting in the work to build up your body to build up your mind to build up your resiliency all those things which is what he did and his career just catapulted from then on so i think a lot of people who are going through good times and bad will learn a lot from this one absolutely absolutely he's he's got a ton i don't know if you remember playing against him but i played against him in the american league and then obviously juniors i never played against him in college we were in different uh, divisions or whatever um but the one word i would use to describe butts on the ice is poise yeah he had a ton of poise like very smooth like him and, it's funny him and chris weidman like wide is probably definitely a little bit more offensive minded but like when they had the puck it's just there's no panic point they're very smooth they're smooth skaters like you know and what's cool is that listening to him talk he talks the same way he's a very poised individual like i mean uh, he should have his own podcast <laughs> <laughs> i know wait don't wait that's coming. Yeah. no just kidding <laughs> he brings uh, you know some some good info like to help out the hockey world i i'm all for that yeah very, very cool interview yeah and the other thing that was really cool was i had no idea but he was a part of that fight between calgary and vancouver where tortorella stormed the locker room to try and fight bob hartley and uh to hear his perspective on that all the way from like the pregame when it was being orchestrated to being in the locker room and and uh being outside right after the fight and watching tortorella and and uh like that was pretty interesting to get on the inside of that too yeah, it was really cool. I mean, the, the, honestly, this episode has everything. Like, I don't. Even, I usually like talking on the intros. We have some fun, but like this episode's so good. I don't think we should take anything away from Butts. <laughs> we should. We should let him take it away. But there is definitely one thing I want to talk about. And you know, Chris Butler is a a, a St. Louis guy, and I want to just give a shout out to another St. Louis guy, Patrick Maroon, uh, last, or it was, it was Monday. So what day is today? Wednesday. So two days ago, uh, the organization that I'm the strength coach for, and, and I'm an assistant coach with the AAA blues, we had a celebrity golf outing and, you know, amateur hockey is expensive. We talk about all the time. We're disgusted with the prices. Like, unfortunately it is what it is. Ice costs a lot, yada, yada, yada. Um, we really rely on this golf outing to help our organization make money and all the money from the golf outing goes towards, you know, supporting the organization, supporting the kids. There's no profit off of this. And Patrick Maroon 
signed up to do it, you know, a while ago, then he wins the Stanley cup. Obviously more people want to play golf with him, makes our organization more money. That's amazing. Well, he hasn't signed his NHL deal yet. Doesn't know where he's going to play next year. So he decided to fly to Minnesota and he had a workout and a skate on Monday night. Most guys I know, and it was a hundred, it was a hundred degrees in St. Louis on Monday, a hundred degrees and it rained that morning. And in St. Louis, that means it's muggy AF swass everywhere, <laughs> uh, just out of control, like dripping down, <laughs> dripping down your knees, swass like that bad. Pat still came, showed up in the morning, did the meet and greet, played nine holes with his group, and then went directly to the airport to fly to Minnesota to skate and work out. Unreal. Most NHL guys they're not going to do that. They're going to, they're going to pull the shoot. Most of them are. I hate to say it. Even as good as NHL guys are Pat Maroon didn't, he knew how important it was to the kids of St. Louis. He came, he played, he helped the organization make money. And then he went about and went to, did his work. And I just got to say like, that is Pat Maroon to a T. It is so much heart, so much character, very unselfish, uh, unselfish of him. And I just want to say thank you. And we need more people like that uh, to, to help these kids out. Amen, man. That was unreal. And uh, he's he's known as one of those guys too, right? He is. He is. He's all heart. Like uh, somebody is going to scoop him up and they're going to get an unbelievable locker room guy, a guy who's going to score 10 to 20 goals in front of the net. Uh, You know, he can fight, he can hit, he can do it all. And the guy is just all heart, man. He's a great dude. And yeah, it was, it was very cool to see that. And I also, you know, I don't want to leave the other guys out who showed up all the other pros, Weidman, um, Cam, you know, all, all the boys, Chase Berger. Uh, we had a lot of good guys show up and help, help, uh, the organization they grew up in make money. So it was very cool. Sweet. Sweet. Well, sweet. Logan Brown, I don't, Trent Frederick. I don't want to forget anybody. I'm sure I am. <laughs> oh, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah, I know. Uh, They're all my guys that train with me anyways. They know I love them. <laughs> Um, speaking of all heart, I should probably mention that today is my nine year anniversary with wow. a lovely bride. Can you believe that? Nine years, nine years ago today, you were shirtless, sweating and drunk, giving one of the funniest, best man speeches I've ever heard. Um, so nine years I ago I wasn't today. shirtless when I gave the best man speech though. Uh, true. You were not. You did have a shirt on at that point, but it was very early. We made sure it was early in the night because actually we had no idea that you would take your shirt off because that was like the first wedding that any of us had ever really been to of, of people that's like our age. So yeah, we didn't you got even know to 12. expect. <laughs> I thought you were a Quaker for a second. <laughs> No, but yeah, what a, what a night. That was unbelievable. You got the best wife ever. What's up, Emma? Shout out. Yeah. So I feel like she's probably not going to listen to this, but that's okay. (laughs) I would, uh, (laughs) I want to say happy anniversary to my bride because if it wasn't for her and, and, uh, her killing it and what she does, I I don't know if this podcast would have ever happened. Um, and, uh, she's the glue for our family. She's freaking eight months pregnant right now and still killing it and still doing her thing. So, um, amazing, amazing woman. And, uh, um, yeah, if you haven't actually listened to the podcast where she came on, it was, uh, with myself and her and, and Benny Sire, who I worked with at Cornell and his wife to give you a perspective on, you know, the college hockey recruiting lifestyle, um, which was a really fun one to do. I would, uh, encourage people to go back and listen to that one, but, uh, love you, M, even though you're probably not going to listen to this and, uh, happy nine years and, uh, appreciate all you do for me and, and, uh, Paige and our new daughter that's coming September ish, September 23rd is the due date. So things are getting hot. <laughs> awesome. Very cool, buddy. Very cool. Happy Annie. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's head on over to Chris Butler, man. This was such a great episode. So, um, without further ado, here we go with Chris Butler. 
we are so excited to have on this episode of the podcast Stanley Cup champion Chris Butler, who's now vacationing with his family up in Minnesota, probably singing his swan song. But uh, Chris, how are we doing here today, man? Doing great, thank you. Appreciate you guys having me. Yeah, no, thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on. And we got uh, a couple St. Louis boys on the podcast here today. And uh, what we typically like to do, uh, Chris, before we get on to, obviously you won the Stanley Cup with the Blues this year, and we want to get into that, but we want to take it way back and um, just ask you a little bit about your childhood and growing up and and how you fell in love with the game. So, um, you know, growing up in St. Louis, we've heard Jeff kind of talk about his journey, but, uh, you know, what was your journey like in St. Louis and uh, who were maybe some of your mentors that helped you fall in love with the game? when you were younger yeah for sure i grew up in kirkwood missouri so about 20 minutes west of downtown st louis and my dad played college hockey for st louis university my mom was actually a college field hockey player there so hockey's kind of in the butler family blood and my dad would have sticks around the house so i started you know denting the drywall and screwing things up in the basement so that's probably where i originally fell in love with the game but Growing up in Kirkwood, we had an outdoor rink and only a couple other teams to play against. So it was maybe one practice every couple of weeks and you play a game or two here and there. I think we only played like a 14, 16 game schedule growing up. And then as things kind of started to progress, we got a better rink in Kirkwood and a few more teams started to develop. Chesterfield came into existence, which was largely in part to a lot of the Blues alumni sticking around and helping grow that program. And that was the first time I met some future teammates, guys like Travis Turnbull, Matt Zook, Mike Davies. And we'd go on to play AAA together where we had Perry Turnbull, who was, you know, I think with the second overall pick in the NHL and Mike Zook as head coaches and just the stuff that you could learn from those guys that maybe Joe Schmo who sits on his couch and watches sports center can't teach about the game. <laughs> and I think that's where I really fell in love with it was just how intricate these guys were with us as maybe 12, 13, 14 year old kids. And I was just a sponge when these guys would talk. And I love hearing the stories about what the NHL was like. And I think for me, that was the point where I really started to get hooked, but I'm sure Vex has touched on it. Growing up in St. Louis, I mean, hockey wasn't even on TV hardly. My parents had to get a special converter box just so we could get half of the blues games. And, you know, we were fortunate enough to watch guys like Brett Hall come through town, you know, Al McKinnis, Chris Pronger, Scott Stevens, Gretzky was here for a cup of coffee. I mean, the list of players that played for the blues is pretty unbelievable. And watching those guys, I never thought in a million years I'd ever get a chance to play in that same league, but that's, that's where it all started for me. And I was a scrawny kid and a skinny kid. So I knew that I was never going to get there on town alone. So I had to become a worker and a grinder and kind of got obsessed with working out and making sure I was always in the best shape and got lucky and, and made a made a team in the USHL on a tryout and the rest is kind of history. That's unreal, man. And uh, it's kind of interesting, like talking to you just before air, one of the things that you mentioned was um, how the NHL wasn't even like a, a big dream for you until somebody in like junior hockey was like, Hey, like you might get drafted right now. And I feel like that's just like so much different today with kids growing up that like they have the expectations of playing the NHL at five years old. Um, but like, how, how did that kind of come about in terms of you really getting serious about it? Was it, you know, towards the end of kind of like your midget career in St. Louis? Was it, you know, when you figured out that, Hey, I actually could make something of myself in this game when you got to juniors or maybe college at Denver, um, when did it really hit you that this could be like a thing for you? 
I was a late bloomer. Um, physically normal. and we call and, them normal and, and game wise. <laughs> What's that? I said we call them normal bloomers on this show, Butsy, because you know, <laughs> we, don't, we, don't, we don't look at Connor McDavid and Patrick Kane and and guys like that as the the normal. Like those are the extraordinary. They're way up there. And something we always talk about is that people with social media and Instagram today, they all look up to those guys and like, well, I'm going to play in the NHL at 19. No, you're not. That is point zero 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 one percent. A guy like you, we like to call like quote unquote a normal bloomer. Sorry to interrupt, but just wanted to say that you're not a late bloomer. You're normal. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll we'll say physically. Then I was. I mean, I think I went to junior hockey at like 158 pounds, and I was just tall and lanky. And I played junior B my sophomore year of high school, and played high school hockey as well. And I can remember practicing at junior B, and then taking half my gear off and driving over to Queenie Park, where we had a lot of our high school games, and I go play a high school game. So. I was just looking to get as much ice time and as much practice time as was possible. And I had signed a letter of intent or a tender, I think they were called at the time, to go play for the Capital Center Pride in the North American League. And then it was about maybe 10 or 15 games left in our junior B season, and that team folded. So all of a sudden, I'd had these plans, and they were out the window. So Fast forward, our season was over, and I got invited to maybe three or four USHL camps, and the first one just so happened to be Sioux City. And I went there, made the team. Uh, I think I got scratched my first game of the USHL, and I was just like, okay, I don't like this. So started working even harder and uh, had a pretty good year. We had a good team and a great coach, and I think it was after my second year, I was rated by Central Scouting, and there was a chance that I was going to get drafted. And, and I think our coach told me, he said, you know, I think you're going to get invited to the world junior camp. I'm like, Oh, that sounds cool. What's that? Just because <laughs> we had no, I had no exposure. I had no idea what it was. It wasn't on TV. Like I didn't know what it was. And I think that summer camp up in Lake Placid, you know, where we had guys like, you know, Robbie Schramm, who was going to go in the first round, Jack Johnson, Eric Johnson, uh, Bobby Ryan, all these guys that were rated inside the top 10 or were going to be picked high the next year. And I could go out there and compete with these guys. That's when I think it really clicked. Things just kind of took off. Well, I, I remember playing against you in the USHL, and I obviously knew who you were from growing up, playing playing a year below me on the 86 AAA team, and I was in 85. And your first year, I can't remember if your first year in the USHL was my third or if it was your second was my third, but I remember you coming into Omaha, and you played a game against us, and I was like, holy crap did he get good like you were good obviously playing triple a you know the highest level in st louis but it was like okay like he plays triple a and then half i think it was the second half of my my last year maybe in juniors and i was like oh my god like you just completely transformed like you, you were the best skater on the ice you were never out of position like I remember coming down on you on a one-on-one and just like I beat you wide uh, not a big deal I do remember that but your positioning <laughs> your positioning like I was like holy crap like your your brain was so far ahead of everyone else on the ice I was like this guy is really really good and before that I don't remember you being that good so it like again, really cool to like kind of watch that transformation of you take off. And it was definitely over that like two year period that you're talking about right now. Yeah. I feel like I went from being like a scrawny kid to, you know, we had some good older guys on that team that helped me a lot. And, 
you know, you start lifting weights and training. And I think I put on almost 20 pounds my first year, which <laughs> is a huge transition. I mean, I think I went from 160 to 180. I mean, not like that's big by any stretch, but for me, that was a huge step. I think just confidence wise, it allowed me to, you know, maybe play a little bit more physical and I kind of had a tough D partner. So we could kind of get away with some stuff and he would kind of police and take care of everything else. But who was it? I always, David Dieterding. Oh yeah. Oh, I remember that name. Yeah. yeah, 20 year old. He's our captain. And for me, that was cool. That was a fun guy to play with because he just kind of showed me the ropes and I had his respect as a young kid and he certainly had mine. I just wanted to be the best possible player I could. And you start getting noticed, you start talking to different colleges and I just wanted to, I wanted to have options, I guess. I didn't want to be, and I don't want to talk down to anybody that, you know, went to, you know, maybe a lower end school, but I didn't want to go to just a low level program. I wanted to go to what I thought was the best program and I wanted to play and I wanted to compete against the best possible players every night. And to me at that time, I thought that's where the WCHA was at and that's where I wanted to go. Well, you certainly, I think you went into Denver the year after they won the two national championships, right? Yeah, so we kind of had a target on our back, and we unfortunately didn't have the depth to to go for a third one in a row, but uh, we had some awesome players there, and Paul Stasny, Matt Carl, Peter Menino, Ryan Dingle uh, was another beneficiary of playing with Paul Stasny. I think he scored about 25 a a year. Ryan Dingle was my first fight. First fight ever in the USHL, Ryan Dingle. (laughs) A couple of heavyweights going in there. <laughs> totally. I just I just remember like we kind of went at it and uh I'd never been in a fight before and we kind of looked at each other and I was like, "Oh god, this is going to happen." And then boom, and I think he one punched <laughs> me, but anyways, the the question I have for you because this is an interesting topic. So all three of us played multiple years of of junior hockey, and I always thought that every year I played 4 years, so that's like too many, but um, I, f- I felt like every year I learned something and was a little bit more prepared. Um, and I felt, felt like even after my third year, I wasn't ready to go in college. It was my fourth year. Like what do you, what is your guys and, and Bussy, I'll ask you first, like, what is your experience from year one to year two? Like how different was it and how much of like a learning experience was it and how much kind of more confident did you feel in that second year? For me, that second year was everything. Uh, I didn't have a lot of opportunity to play a lot of offensive situations my first year just because we had older guys. And I think junior at that time was maybe a lot like the NHL was, where young guys kind of had to buy their time. You got kind of the scraps as far as ice time and minutes, and you had to do, you know, unloading the bus and all the junk chores that nobody really wants to do. But we had basically first year guys and then everybody else. And that second year was a chance for me to be a part of the group of everybody else and be a leader. And I wanted to be the guy that I wasn't a huge rah, rah motivational speech type of guy. I wanted to be the guy that showed everyone that, look, this is how we're going to work. This is how we're going to compete every day, whether it's practice game off ice, whatever. I never wanted to get beat in a bag skating drill or anything like that, because I wanted to set the standard. And I felt like, if I was working a certain way, then I expect everybody else to be working that way. We had an awesome team and a great group of guys and a ton of people that kind of saw things the same way. And that's that group that we had that second year was one of the most fun teams we ever had a chance to play on. We ended up losing in the second or the actually the very last game, game five against Cedar Rapids in the, was it Clark cup finals. And 
one of the coolest things that year was with it being in the NHL lockout, Ruslan Fedotenko was back in Sioux City and would skate with us from time to time. And I always wanted to go against him in drills just to see how far away I was from ever getting a chance to compete with those guys. So he was the guy that helped our group a lot just by being out there and showing us basically what it was like to work like an NHLer. That's really cool. And a couple of points I want to touch on. One, didn't Fedotenko wind up marrying his housing mom in Sioux City? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't going to get into why he was. That is true, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Still okay, married, so yeah. that was one. Just make sure I yeah, remember. Nice lady, nice lady. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, she's a nice lady. I was just remembering that correctly. <laughs> make sure I remember that correctly. Um, but the real, the, re- the real point that I wanted to touch on is, uh, you know, I, I have a training company here in St. Louis training a lot of young hockey players that are going into juniors this year, next year, whatever it may be. And I think, again, with social media and, you know, people just having kind of uh, unrealistic expectations sometimes, they think they're going to go into juniors and be immediately first-line center. They're going to score 20 goals in the USHL their first year. And 99% of the time, that's not the case. So you touched on it, you know, that first year, you you didn't play as many minutes. um, You kind of got the scraps. What kind of advice would you give to a younger player, whether it's somebody who's just signed their first NHL deal and they're going to the A or they're going to the show or first year junior guy, freshman in college, when you're not given those minutes right away, what should you be doing? Well, I think you have to approach it day by day. I think too many people look too far down the road. And part of the problem with doing that is you don't get a chance to really enjoy everything that's happening right now. And sometimes the struggle and sometimes some of the stuff that really sucks, you're going to look back and be really thankful. Some of that stuff happened to you. And like I said, I was scratched my very first game of junior hockey. I just moved away from home. I'm 16 years old at the time and I'm not playing the first game. And I could, it it would have been easy to quit, to call home, to call your agent, call whoever, and just say, you know what, this isn't for me, but I took it as a challenge. And there's good days and bad days, whether you're playing junior hockey, college hockey in the NHL, but you are responsible for the way you work, the way you prepare every single day. And if you do the right things every single day, and if you're above all a good teammate, doors are going to open for you. You're always going to have a good reputation. And that was one of the things that I really prided myself on throughout my career, whether it was later in my career where I wasn't playing as much, I was going to come to the rink every day with a good attitude and, if one of our star players needed to talk to someone about problems at home or not happy with the way they're playing or not happy with their usage, then I was going to be that guy to help them. So I think my advice would be be a good teammate, help somebody else out. The world that we live in now, people are always going through tough times and just be there for somebody and be a good teammate. That's like that. Yeah, that's so true. That's unreal. And I want to I want to ask you this too because um, I think one of the best things about playing two years of junior hockey and even playing college hockey too. I mean, I think you learn how to become a follower and then you learn how to become a leader. And For I sure. think I think both of those are extremely extremely important. And and it sounds like you've been both. I mean, you wore uh, you know a letter on your chest uh, in the AHL. Um, I, w- I would venture a guess to say that that's probably a reason why your career extended as long as it did. Because obviously you're a good player, but if you're that good of a leader, you're gonna you can basically play as long as you want. Um, so 
you know, in those two years of junior hockey and then, you know, in those years that you played at Denver where you were a captain towards the end of your career, but you had to come in as a freshman as well, you know, are those kinds of things and those lessons that you learned that allowed you to, to flourish as a pro once you got there? I think so, because you always think you're doing a lot or you're doing more than someone. And the reality is somebody's always doing more. Somebody's always doing something better, eating better, sleeping better, something. And, you know, you take that step. So you go to junior hockey, right? And like I said, I was 160 pounds, but, you know, I could bench press 135 pounds 10 times. And I thought that was a lot. Well, then you go there and you see these 20 year olds that are putting 225 pounds on the bar. And I'm like, I can't even squat that. So you just keep taking steps in the right direction and you learn from people and you watch how certain guys practice. You watch how certain guys train. You watch how much guys love the game and, and how much they're watching other players and picking up things from better players or smarter players. And for me, it, it was always about continuing to, I guess, readjust and reset goals because as I got better and older and was approaching junior hockey and then started junior hockey, I just wanted to play college. And then it was like, okay, if I can pay for my college, then that's great. Now let's readjust. Maybe it's okay. Let's get drafted. And then after that, it was readjusting it to, okay, now I want to play in the NHL. And it's just, it's okay to have long-term goals, but I think short-term small goals are really the answer to seeing improvement because, you know, at 14, you say you want to play in the NHL. Well, it might not happen to your 27. So what do you do for those 13 years in between? And uh, I think the idea of the, the short-term goals is where I really kind of, was able to see the improvement and stay positive and stay motivated. I love that. And, you know, I think a lot of that, everything you're saying, it sounds like your mindset butts was just amazing. Is that something that you just innately had? Did your parents help to instill like a positive mindset? Because one thing is that I've noticed, um, you know, throughout my career is that, you know, some guys who wouldn't make it as long or wouldn't have good years was, they were kind of like a poor me mindset. It was like, yeah. oh, this is happening to me. Like, I think what people need to do is you're going to have those negative setbacks. You're going to get scratched. This is going to, you might get injured. You know, things are going to happen. And I'm not, I personally am not somebody who believes in fate, but I do believe instead of thinking, oh, this happened to me, I want people to switch their mindset and think, this happened for me. I'm going to use whatever comes at my way. If it's a negative, like Toph getting hurt, he tore his knee in juniors. Well, what did he do that year? He learned how to come back from an injury. He watched yep. a ton of hockey and he's one of the brightest hockey minds I know. So he used that injury to turn it into a positive, which made him a better hockey player. And now down the road, he's doing all these positive, amazing things within the hockey world. So he used a negative to turn it into a positive. And it sounds like you were really good at that. Is that something that, you know, someone taught you, you read a book, like, how did you get to this mindset? I think it was a lot of just the way that I was raised. Um, I come from a good family and I think just watching my parents work every day, just laid a good, I guess, basis for the way that I was going to approach things and look at things. And, you know, my mom would work 10 hour days and she'd walk in the door, throw her stuff down and start preparing a nice dinner for us. So our family could sit around and talk and, and have good food on the table every single night. And she would do everything until we went to bed and then she would crash and she'd get up at five thirty six a.m. the next day and go to work and do it all over again. And I just, I hate excuses because Everybody could have one if they really wanted to, you know, you come from a tough upbringing. Okay. Well work harder, get through it. 
set a better example for your younger brother, your younger sister, whoever it is. And I just, I, I get frustrated with some of these, I, I don't want to classify all younger players as being different, but the mindset with this next generation is very different. And part of it's because of what you touched on with social media, you know, they see all these people that, you know, whether they have nice cars or nice homes or they're doing this, you know, we trained at a gym in Minnesota that was in the basement of a caribou coffee. And we had six NHL players down there. You know, we don't need to go to a Gary Roberts facility and have people watching, you know, oh, your right knee moved in 0.1 degree on your last squat. So you got to go and do this type of treatment. Like I was just from the mindset of work harder, outwork somebody. That's how you're going to get there. Because like I said, I was never the most skilled guy. And I just, I think one of the things that people need to look at, and like you said, is tough stuff happens over the course of your career. I mean, I hold an NHL record for the worst plus minus in a single game. I was minus seven in a game against Boston a handful of years ago, and I didn't play poorly. Every single shot that was taken when I was on the ice went in. We lost nine, nothing. And now it's kind of nice. I can joke with some of these kids in the American League who are frustrated after a night of going minus two, minus three. I'm like, that's a good game. Like I went minus seven and you can just kind of help them maybe get, get through some things by, you know, making a joke out of yourself. And I just, I love the kids that have the mindset of every day I'm going to prepare and every day I'm going to be consistent because there's so many of them now that don't appreciate what they have. I think, you know, they stay up till three, four in the morning playing video games and they come to the rink and they're tired. I'm like, well, I've got two kids. One of them got sick last night. So I was up from about three till six in the morning. I had a coffee and a bag on here. I am like, we've got work to do. Like, don't feel sorry for yourself. Get the job done. But I don't know. And I think I maybe come off as a little abrasive and could be a bit of aggressive from that standpoint. But I think you kind of need to have that Teflon mindset that, you know, we're very blessed to play this game for a living. And if you get an opportunity to do it, then don't screw it up and make it last as long as you can. I love that. I absolutely love that. And something that, that TOEF is massive on and me and as well as perspective. And, and I mean, that was exactly what you just said. You know, a guy, a teammate comes to you. Oh, oh man, I'm down on myself. I'm going to have a pity party. I was minus three tonight. Oh, hey, buddy, I was dash seven in the show. I hold an NHL record. Yeah. You know, like yeah. that's perspective. And then and then you can use that. And I'm sure you did. If you had a, an off night, maybe you were minus two. I'm sure maybe, you know, after the game, you're like, you know, damn it, that was minus two. Oh, wait, I was dash seven one game. Okay, minus two, not that bad. Let's get back into it. Let's work harder tomorrow. Let's work smarter. You know, so perspective is massive. So for the kids and parents listening to this, when your kid has a bad game or you're you're young guys, you're listening to this, you have a bad game. Take the positives out of the game, learn from the negatives, and then move forward. That game's over. There's no point in drowning in pity. Move forward, learn from it, and get better no matter how poor you think you played that night, you did something right. At some point, whether you opened the door for the right time at a guy that was tired <laughs> coming into the bench, or you got your buddy, his Gatorade instead of the water. And you knew that he wanted it. Like you did something right that day. And I think once, once people realize how fun this game is and how cool it is to play hockey for a living, there's so much stress that comes with the job a lot of times. But if you put it, like you said, in the right perspective and realize that it is a game, and you're obligated to go out there and work and compete 
whether it's 76 times, 82 in the NHL, 40 in college, whatever it is, you have an opportunity to go out there and play hockey, and people are paying money to watch you perform. If you think about it like that, it just becomes so much more fun, and I think you play better. Totally. Yeah, I'm just going to like play this podcast on repeat like every day with all the stuff that you're saying. I love it. <laughs> yeah, um, what's you're saying right now? I'm yeah. loving this. I'm pumped up. <laughs> I know. Seriously, right? So um, it, it, you you had said that you learned a lot of this stuff from your family, um, but having mentors, especially when you get to the NHL, has to be something that's extremely important. And, and I would imagine in your twilight years, you were an awesome mentor for the guys that were coming up and playing both in the NHL and the AHL. Um, but when you broke in with Buffalo, I live in upstate New York right now and, and Sabres is yeah. huge Sabres country. And you kind of went in there when they had it humming with Lindy Ruff and, and some of those guys, um, who were some mentors that you had when you first got into the game and, uh, what were some of the things that they did to kind of help you show the ropes? Well, for starters on the back end, my first ever NHL game was against the LA Kings and my D partner was Teppo Newman. And I think he was 40 years old at the time. I I've heard 21. he's the man. Is he the man? I've heard from multiple people. He, that he's unreal. He's just like the coolest guy you'd ever meet. He's got like this slick back jet hair. He was like so frail looking. And, <laughs> you know, we we played a lot of like fourth line minutes. Uh, and part of that was my fault because uh, I was just a young guy and they didn't trust me to play against anybody else. And I don't blame them. But <laughs> we were playing the, the first couple of games were against L.A., who had uh, Rydis Evenons, big, tough guy. And the next night we played in Montreal against George LaRock. You know, those guys would just chip in the puck in and they want to run the piss out of you. So they would chip it in his corner and like, he's going back to get it. And I'm like, oh my God, like he's going to get like just smashed in half. And he would kind of pull some sneaky little escape move and make a perfect breakout pass. And we'd go up the ice and I was just like, thank God, because if George LaRock runs him through the end wall, I'm the closest guy to him, which means that I'm going to go over there and I'm going to take about three lefts to the face and I'll be staring it up at all the really cool numbers that are retired here in the Montreal uh, arena. But it was just, he was so good to me. And I'll never forget it before I went off my first game. And you guys have been through that situation, whether it's junior college, you're so hyped up for a game. And I could not feel the lower half of my body. I was shaking, like just so nervous. And he just tapped me on the shin pads and said, play your game. You're here for a reason. And for whatever reason, that just kind of calmed me down. And I don't want to say I went out there and played extremely well, but it was just so relaxing to hear a guy that had played over a thousand games at that point. Just tell me, look, you belong here. Just like I belong here. Just like all your teammates belong here. And that just kind of calmed me down. But to touch on some of the older guys, we had such a fun group there and guys that I still keep in touch with to this day. And I've told the story before. Andrew Peters uh, took me in oh, and invited me into his house for Christmas time because I got called up December 19th for my first game. So it screwed up my plans to go home from the American League. We were playing in Portland at the time. And I had no family. I didn't have a ton of money. I wasn't going to change flights. So he'd just gotten married that summer, invites me to all of his family Christmas stuff. He went to Hugo Boss and bought me like a suit, a sweet jacket, jeans, T-shirts, button-ups, you name it. Spent thousands of dollars on me for Christmas time. And I, I was just like speechless. I, I probably cried that morning opening up that stuff because it's one of the nicest things that anybody's ever done for me. They just made me feel like I was a part of their family. And Petey and I are still close to this day. And uh, I wrote him a letter when I knew I was going to retire, just thanking him 
for what he did for me. And those are little things that you in return try and do for people, you know, whether it's Thanksgiving time and people don't have, you know, the young guys that are in the American league, maybe you got guys that are called up from the East coast league making, you know, a couple hundred bucks a week, you know, they can't afford a nice Turkey dinner or Christmas time. They can't afford to go home. So you try and invite some of those guys over and, and make them feel a part of your family and make them feel welcome so that they can enjoy some holiday time. But I would say going through that team, you've got Andrew Peters, uh, Craig Reve was another guy that I got to play with the next year. Uh, Tempo Newman was there. Awesome. Thomas Vanek, uh, probably the most uh, financially giving player I've ever played with. I don't think I ever paid for a meal for like two years, which he probably doesn't know, but that's why I always asked him to go to dinner on the road. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, those are guys that I still keep in touch with this day. And, you know, he lives in Minnesota now, so we try and get out at least once a summer and play some golf. And, but you just want to be, it kind of goes back to being that good teammate. I learned from guys before me, and I hope that some of the stuff that I did can be passed along to the guys that they're going to be doing it in 10 years when they're the old farts like me. Very cool. Yeah, man, that's, uh, that's really cool. Well, it's, it's really cool, too, that you understood um, how important it was that that mentorship was going on and then you were able to, to do it. Um, you know, when you became a leader and you became more of a veteran and you played 407 NHL games, which is incredible, you won a Stanley Cup. Um, are there any memories from your time in the NHL that really kind of st- like stick with you, especially when it comes to that kind of like team camaraderie, team bonding, just kind of forming relationships with the guys kind of thing? Oh, to me, I think some of the most fun nights are the rookie parties. Um, <laughs> you know, as a younger guy, my first handful of years, and they can be used as bonding experiences, but you don't get a chance to hang out with a lot of the older guys at home, obviously, because they leave practice and they go home to their family and take care of their kids. And I think that was the biggest adjustment for me coming out of college where you spend so many hours together all day. You know, you wake up in the morning, you work out, and then you all go to the cafeteria together, and then you go to class together, and then you go to practice, and you go home and study together, and then you go to the bar together on Saturday night, and everyone's there. And it was just different all of a sudden. It was like, okay, now we need to create relationships where we're only together for three hours a day at the rink, but how do we get tight? And I think those rookie parties were fun times that, you know, the young guys could mingle with the older guys, and everyone has some fun, and, and some shenanigans always seem to happen. Luckily, nobody ever got arrested, but <laughs> that's one. Of, those are some of my favorite times. And then the other one was an instance in Calgary. We were kind of having a tough year, and we went into Vancouver, and Brian McGratton basically orchestrated a five-on-five line brawl to start the game. And that was the infamous <laughs> Tortorella come down the hallway to get after Bob Hartley. Oh, you were and- playing in that game. Yeah, yeah, I started that game. I got kicked out two seconds in. No way. <laughs> yeah, so the way that starts is Bob Hartley called in the fourth line for a meeting before the game, which, as you well know, isn't that unordinary. But next thing you know, he's reading off the starting lineup before the game, and he goes through our forward group, and it's Blair Jones, who's a tough kid, Brian McGratton, who never started hockey games, and Kevin Westgarth, <laughs> who never started hockey oh games. Oh, my God, that is a tough lineup. And then, and then he reads off the D pair, and we've got Ladislav Smead, who's my D partner. I'm like, oh, I guess I'm starting too, so I'm starting as well. So now I'm thinking, okay, something's going to happen here. Who do they have? So they have Kellen Lane, who's a rookie, six foot six. So I'm like, well, not going after him. They have Tom Sestito, 
who oh. he and McGratton had had some epic fights here uh, in like the last month. So I'm like, okay, well, those two are fighting. And then they had, it was Dale Weiss. So I'm like, okay, that's probably who Jonesy's going to fight. So I'm like, okay, well, all the three forwards are all paired off. Then they get to the back end. I'm like, Kevin Bieksa. I'm like, oh, that's a hard no. I don't want to have Superman <laughs> next week. So tell me they're starting like some young European defenseman. Well, the other guy was Jason Garrison. Oh, and okay. Not, not to, out of the five, he, he's my best option. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> so the three forwards start fighting, and I see out of the corner of my eye, Ladislav Smeed is kind of making his way towards Garrison. And I'm like, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> not, not a chance. And I kind of hit the speed burst button and went over and grabbed uh, Jason Garrison. And he's like, everyone else is fighting. You want to go? I'm like, yeah, sure. So we thought nothing really happened. We all get kicked out of the game. We've got, so the four of us that get kicked out of the game, Brian McGrath, the guy who orchestrates everything, is still sitting in the penalty box. <laughs> so the four of us get kicked out of the game. We're sitting in the side room of Vancouver. We've got like four injured guys with us and our goalie coach, Clint Malarcha. So we've got like nine guys there. We're just chumming up, having a laugh. Well, next thing you know, they show the camera of the tunnel coming off the ice and Tortorella comes buzzing down the hallway. And Clint Malarchet pops out and starts running towards him. And luckily, he had a long ways to go, and somebody intercepted him. Because if he would have gotten on Tortorella, Clint might still be in jail. Because Clint is a tough, tough customer. But it just became something that we laughed about for the next handful of weeks, something we talked about. And it still gets brought up, you know, every now and again with Tortorella. And I always get a chuckle out of it when you see people tweet about it or whatever. And it was just a cool thing to be a part of and say, hey, uh, we had a bench, or not a bench clear, but a line brawl to start a game, and that was a part of it. That's, That's awesome. I was actually in a wedding party with Jason Garrison uh, a handful of years back. <laughs> One of his best buddies growing up in Vancouver was my uh, my classmate at Cornell, so – that's uh, that's really funny. I didn't realize that you were playing in that game. So, like, thinking about it now and just, like, did Tortorella just blow a gasket there? Like, what was that like being on the other side? Were you around when he kind of came to your guys' locker room and was trying to, like, get in and stuff? Yeah, I mean, it, it would be, like, two locker rooms next to each other. So we had a long ways to go to kind of get back out to the tunnel where the guys were coming in. And I don't – there was no real, like – bad blood between the two teams. So I, why we had a line draw to start the game, I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, Bob Hartley kind of liked to, to puff his chest a little bit and, you know, kind of stand behind his tough guys. And luckily we had Brian McGratton, which nobody could really touch at the time. So he was a good guy to stand behind. And the rumor is that Tortorella got to Hartley and just kind of shoved him and Bob kind of uh, ran and hit a little bit. Uh, I don't know if I can confirm that because I didn't have eyes on the situation, but it was just one of the wildest things because, you know, you see the videos of the bench and Tortorella's just losing his mind. And I think the big part of it was is that Kellen Lane's first ever NHL game and his parents were there and the kid was going to start the game and have to fight Kevin Westgar. So <sighs> probably not the start to an NHL career that you'd want oh. as a head coach for, for a young guy who earned an opportunity. So I think that was uh, part of the reason that old John was a little pissed off. How did he do against West Garth? That guy is a killer. I think Kevin uh, rearranged his nose a little bit, uh. but uh, the, the kid the kid held his own. And uh, I mean, six foot six, I think he did fine. But I don't know if he ever played again in the NHL. Oh, that's tough. Yeah. yeah. So did he have one shift and get kicked out? Two seconds, kicked yep. out, no games yep. again. Yep. I I could be wrong, but I think that was the case. 
Wow. We'll have to that's look crazy. that up. Um, well, that, yeah, that's, that's a crazy story, but, uh, let's, let's shift it to a little bit, uh, more happier time. So you're a kid growing up in St. <laughs> Louis, you know, your, your idols growing up, you know, Brendan Shanahan, Al McInnes, Chris Pronger. Um, and then you get a chance to sign with St. Louis, um, and play for the blues. What, what was that like? Take us through kind of, as you were going through the process of finding out who you wanted to sign with. And, and then when you did ink it with the blues, what that was like for you and your family. Yeah, I think that was the first year we kind of had that talking period where you could talk to different teams. And I had actually just gotten married on the 21st. So free agency was right around the corner and we were going to take off on a two week honeymoon over to Europe. So I was just getting kind of sporadic text messages from my agent. You know, July one comes and people start signing big tickets. And, you know, I'd heard that this team was interested, that team was interested. And then all of a sudden it was like, okay, the phone went radio silent. I'm like, you know what? It's got to be, no, I'm in Europe. I'm not getting good reception. I call my agent. He's like, no, we don't, we don't have anything. And it was, for me, it was extremely frustrating because I played all 82 games that year in the NHL. And 27 years old, was healthy. I thought it was going to be my ticket to kind of set up my family financially for the rest of our lives and, and, you know, get a chance to pick where I wanted to play for once. And, it wasn't until we got to the back end of the honeymoon and St. Louis came calling with a two-way offer. And for me, that was like just a punch in the gut because I played the whole year in the NHL. I'd been there for the last seven years. And I'm like, I could, I just couldn't wrap my head around going back to the American league at the time. So we sat on it for a few days. I came back to St. Louis, had a meeting with Doug Armstrong and he kind of laid out a plan for what they were looking to do. And I didn't really have, another option at that time. And I'm like, you know what, if, when am I ever going to say I got a chance to play for the blues, whether it's one game, a hundred games, whatever. So took a chance, uh, had to start the year in the American league and kind of worked my way back to the NHL at uh, about Thanksgiving time. And to this day, I shouldn't say that. I think it probably sank in on the cup parade day that I actually got a chance to play for the blues because you try not to, at least my mindset was you try not to get carried away with your current situation and, you know, be the hometown kid that's playing for the blues. And granted, I was never a star player. So it wasn't like I was getting pulled in a lot of different directions or people were asking a lot out of me or my friends were being a pain about tickets, but I just wanted to stay focused on my job. And I think it kind of culminated with the parade and seeing how important this hockey team is to the city of St. Louis and to see the amount of people that turned out for this, given the fact that we've been fortunate enough to see the Rams win the Super Bowl and the Cardinals win two World Series. I think this was just on a completely different scale. And that's when it really hit to me that this is really cool what I got to do. That's awesome. That's awesome. And uh, I did want to ask you a little bit about this year uh, being a cup year and stuff. And, and obviously the, the story, uh, there's a lot of storylines uh, in terms of, you know, the fight between Bortuzzo and Sanford and, and Barube coming in and um, Layla Anderson and Pat Maroon and you being, um, you know, St. Louis kids winning cups and Bennington. Um, is there any storyline or is there anything that kind of sticks out to you about this team winning the Stanley cup this year that, that, uh, you know, that kind of makes you like, yeah, this is why we won. I think for me, it was just the simplicity of Craig Berube coming in and getting the group to understand that you guys are all really good hockey players. 
And once you come together and once you guys kind of find out how good you really are, then this team's going to take off. And Craig Berube does a great job of one, letting guys know that he cares about them. You know, he's not the coach that just sits in his office and pounds the keyboard and watches video and, you know, breaks things down and stops at every half a second and asks, you know, where are you going or doing that type of stuff because he played such a long time. He remembers what it's like. So he's out of his office and he's talking to guys. He's got relationships with his players and guys appreciate that. You know, you never go into his office for a meeting. If he wants to talk to you, he grabs a coffee and he buzzes around the room and he talks to guys like men face to face rather than kind of being called into the principal's office and having to sit in his office and listen to him scold you about a player or whatever. It was that. And then it was Jordan Bennington, the confidence that he instilled in that group. And that's by no way a slight of Jake Allen because he's a hell of a goaltender. But Benner came in and just had this attitude and this persona that got adopted by the media and really took a life of its own. And he just, the guys appreciated the cockiness that he brought and <laughs> playing in front of him. I mean, you know, slashing Ben Bishop in the back of the legs, going off the ice. Like he just does stuff to stir the pot and kind of almost put a little bit more pressure on himself. But then he answers the bell every single time up to this point. And the guys rallied around it and they love it. And that's part of the reason guys like playing in front of him. That's really cool. And I want to ask you a question about Craig Berube because I think for me as an outsider looking in, the one of the most pivotal points of the playoffs was um, his reaction after you guys lost the game against San Jose, the, uh, the yep. hand pass game. And I remember watching the, uh, the press conference afterwards, and he's like, well, that didn't lose us the game. We lost the game because we let a goal up with a minute left in the game for them to tie it. And then they had, had the chance to do that in overtime. And he was like, this is, this is on us. This isn't on the refs. This isn't on San Jose. Like, this, is, this isn't our control. And I just, I just remember watching that and kind of thinking to myself, as a coach, I coached in college and stuff, like, man, these guys are going to win the cup. Like just having a coach like that, that with just that simple and that just perspective, I thought that was amazing. So, you know, take us through kind of after that game and in the locker room and just kind of how you guys, how you guys battled back through that adversity. We've talked about adversity quite a bit already in the podcast, but what was that like? Well, and I'll predate that and I'll go back to when I had Craig Ruby in the American League in Chicago and Chicago always has good teams because they're willing to pay older guys a lot of money to play in the American League. So the expectations are high there, which makes it a fun place to play. And we started off the year 0-4, and he calls me into his locker or his office after a Saturday night game, and I'm his captain, and I'm going back to thinking, okay, he's going to strip the C off my jersey, punch me in the face, and tell me that we're <laughs> going to be on the goal line at 7 a.m. tomorrow. And I walked in there, and he just like was sitting there, relaxed. He said, hey, it's a long year. I want you to make sure that all the guys are together tonight. Everyone's having fun. We'll get back to work on Monday and we'll get this thing figured out. And it was just like a light bulb went off and I was just like, Oh my God, this guy gets it. He understands that there's a process and that's part of what he instilled in St. Louis. And I'm a big believer that your team takes on the personality of your head coach because ultimately he's the leader of your team. And if you look at some of the other coaches in the playoffs and they're complaining about calls or complaining about goals given up or you know different line matchups or whatever it may be travel who knows but players watch that players see that it's on twitter it's on tv it's on everything so guys then start thinking yeah you know what the coaches or you know the refs did screw us tonight or oh you know what you know maybe we should have gotten this call or this play should have never happened and chief doesn't do that chief takes all the excuses and throws them out the window if you want to win, compete harder, play better than the other team. And it's that simple. 
love that. <laughs> I love that so much. That's incredible. Um, so another another kind of storyline that I had for you too. Um, wanted to ask you about, and uh, it, I think it was just so inspiring, and that's Layla Anderson. And talk to us a little bit about, I'm sure you got to know her and your team kind of rallied around her, um, just what that experience was like getting to know her and, and what she meant to your guys' team. Well, I, I think one of the coolest things and one of the toughest things that you do as a hockey player sometimes is those, those visits to the hospitals that you do around Christmas time. And you see these kids and these families that are going through hardships. And like you said about earlier about perspective, it makes you kind of put things in perspective and realize how fortunate you are to do what you do for a living, to have your health and have healthy kids. And so you meet these people and you realize how special they are. And, you know, you think you're tough because you're playing through a, a sore groin or a bum shoulder or something like that. And then you look at what Layla had to go through where she was unfortunately cooped up in her house for so long and doing treatments. And you're watching these videos where they reveal to her that, you know, she gets to come on and go see the Blues play in the playoffs and come to road games, and you know, it, it almost makes you cry. And to see how much she cared about this team and to see what a positive impact sport can have in young people's lives is just awesome. Yeah, not not it almost makes you cry. I definitely cried when I watched that first <laughs> one. I was like, my God, like, this is unbelievable. I mean, she's just she's incredible and I think it's so cool that teams can kind of adopt these kids for back of a letter term and and make them feel a part of it because we're fortunate to get to do what we get to do and to bring them along to the journey and, and get them to you know be on the team and or be on the team plane and hang out with us and get to know some of the guys I mean those are things that hopefully she talks about for the rest of her life very cool yeah, for sure. And and I'm a firm believer that if you can get your team as a coach or as a leader to understand that you're a part of something greater than yourself um, and your team buys into that, I, I think that's one of the most powerful things that you can do as a coach, as a leader. And, you know, reading books about it, Phil Jackson was huge on that. John Wooden was huge on that. Um, and, I mean, did that kind of make you guys like again it's perspective we've talked about it on the podcast already but just the kind of perspective that hey like i'm a part of something greater we're like she's having an impact on us we're having an impact on her and the whole storyline is having an impact on the entire hockey community i mean that just kind of allows you to just play the game and have fun and do what you love to do right it does it frees you up makes you realize that you know the shift the bad shift you had or the bad game you had it's it's not as important as you might think and it allows you to kind of put things behind you and move forward and meeting special people like that. They have lasting impressions. and They might be kind of at the back of your mind sometimes and, and help you get through some tough times when you think you've got it bad or you think times are tough. And she's just an awesome individual and I hope she continues to be a part of the blues for years to come. Yeah, for sure. I, I hope so too. And and kind of along the same lines of that, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, hey, you got two small daughters right now. Uh, I have a two-year-old daughter and one on the way coming in about a month or so. Um, I wanted to nice. ask, yeah, yeah, we're getting ready here. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I wanted to ask you what, like, what has having kids done to you for your career and how is your perspective on the game or your perspective on kind of like your career? How's that changed in, in having kids? Cause that's a question we haven't asked anybody on the podcast yet, but I bet you, you think about things a little bit differently. Um, now that you have a couple daughters that you have to provide for and, and inspire at the same time. 
You do. And you know what? For me, I always had a tough time sleeping after games because I would sit around and think about different plays or situations and things that happened during the game. And, and you tend to kind of dwell on them, especially if you didn't play well or the team lost. And having kids allows you just to kind of move on because, you know, those 20, 30 minutes after the game, when you go grab your family and your daughter and she says, Dada, and you're going to go home and, and have a slice of pizza after a Sunday afternoon game. It's just, it allows you to shut your brain off and, and just kind of switch gears from being an athlete to being a parent. And kids are probably the coolest thing that's ever happened. And I never understood, you know, how much you can really enjoy a kid and love a kid until you have one. And for me, it just, it made the game that much more fun. Uh, even just to do little things like to be able to walk your kid out on the ice or to skate with your kid at the Christmas party. I mean, you always used to think, oh, look at those poor suckers toting their kid around. And then you realize how much fun you actually have when you're doing that. And, uh, they just bring an enormous light to your life and kind of spill a, a fill a void, I guess, that you didn't think was ever really there. That's really cool. I, I remember when I was, uh, after my freshman year, I got invited by Steve Richmond, actually, who works for the Washington Capitals. Toph talked about him on the last podcast to the Washington Capitals development camp. And I remember the, the first meeting we had when we got there, Glenn Hanlon was running it. I think he was their assistant coach or maybe it was their AHL team's head coach. And he's like, you're all young guys. You're all going to be first contract guys getting drafted, whatever. The best thing you have going for you is you don't have a family. But the worst thing you have going for you is that you don't have a family. And I remember sitting yeah. there like I was like, what the hell does that mean? That doesn't make sense. Yeah. I was, I was thinking like little giants when they're like football's 90% physical and 20% mental or whatever they say. I was like, that, that doesn't make any sense. And as I got older and you know, I got married and I didn't have kids, but I had a dog and like, I had a little bit more responsibility. I was like, dude, I totally understand what he's saying now. Like when you have responsibilities, it, it changes the way, again, it's perspective. It changes the way you go about your whole day about how you approach the game about everything. So, uh, it's really, cool well i think it allows you to kind of uh, to switch gears it helps you with time management and it makes you not that you ever take anything for granted but it makes you more appreciative for what you do have and 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 how awesome and how much fun the game can be because you know say you did have a kid that was up all night and sick you know you still get to go to the rink and you get to work on power play and you get to sit through meetings and you get to prepare and you get to kind of put on your work face for a little while and then you get to go home and flip that off and, and take care of your kid again when you go home. And it just, and I think another thing it does is sometimes it allows you to sleep because you're so darn tired from chasing your kid around all day that you end up going to bed at eight, nine o'clock at night. And you get 12 hours of sleep and you're ready to rock the next day. Exactly. Uh, not out, not out chasing uh, other things. <laughs> no, exactly. Oh, uh, that's funny. Well, this has been awesome, man. But before we let you go, I did want to ask you a few hockey things because, uh, you know, getting to the level that you were at and the amount of years that you played, your hockey knowledge has to be just absolutely through the roof. And, you know, we got a lot of coaches that listen to this podcast and, and you're a defense when you played defense um, all year. And I wanted to ask you, um, you know, in terms of developing defensemen, what are what are a couple things, maybe two or three things for the coaches that are listening um, that are really important in terms of instilling, whether it's instilling habits or whether it's instilling a mindset, um, you know, that you would work on with defensemen if you do end up getting into coaching someday? Well, I think the big thing that I would do if we get into coaching is just get to understand your players. And I'm a big believer that there are three different types of players out there. There's the guy you need to coddle a little bit and pick up from time to time. 
there's a guy you kind of need to kick in the ass to get him motivated because he's not always going to be a you know a competitor every night. And then there's the other the third player is the guy you just got to leave alone. And you have to get to know your players and talk to them about things other than hockey because you know as a player talking to a coach you feel pressured you feel obligated to always say the right thing but you know you can have a differing opinion on a baseball team or a soccer team or you know you could be a Yankees fan he could be a Mets fan and you guys can talk about different things and start to build a relationship based off of differences and you're going to have differences in how they see the game and you see the game and I think you just have to be open-minded because if you think that you're the smartest guy in the room and that you know everything, then I don't think you're going to be a good coach at the end of the day. And you can constantly be learning from your players. And I think that's the coolest thing about our business is you get people from all over the world. You know, they might run a power play different in Sweden than we do in North America or Russia or wherever. You can learn you can pick up something from them. You don't always have to watch the NHL and watch what Steven Stamkos and Kucherov are doing in Tampa Bay because Unfortunately, you're not going to have those players in every single team, but I just think the best thing you can do as a coach is be open-minded, you know, be willing to try new things. And if they fail, so what? You're going to fail doing the things that you think are right all the time anyways, too. So be open-minded, try things. Don't be afraid to be an innovator. How important is it to like actually have at every level your players know you care about them? Because it always seems like the guys who aren't playing well, you ask them what's going on. They're like, coach hates me coach coach doesn't he doesn't believe in me he doesn't like me and then you go to the coach and tell him that and they're like oh my god I love that kid you know so like even if you're not playing a kid or or a a grown man or whatever age level you're if that player knows you care about them and you're trying to coach them and make them better and be better than what level they're playing at whether they're hitting you know your your expectations or not if that player knows you care it is a huge difference in what they're going to do uh you know externally and what they're going to give and how hard they're going to practice and things like that i couldn't agree more communication is everything you have to get to know your players and you have to find a common ground and you know, one of the things I found for common ground, Craig Ruby and I is we're both avid golfers and he's a really good golfer. You would, you would never know that, uh, given his career and his hands on the ice, but he's a really good golfer. And so that was something, you know, on Mondays we talk about the golf tournaments and it was just non-hockey related. And we got to become friends through a different sport, even though he was my coach. And I just think that you have to spend time with your players. You have to show them that you care about them. And it's amazing what people will do for you when you show that you care about them. Oh, absolutely. And even at the highest levels in the NHL, you know, I've talked to guys that have played and you guys both played, you know, at, at the highest levels too. I mean, I've heard of coaches that didn't know diddly squat about hockey, but they were just unbelievable motivators, unbelievable good guys. And they're coached at the highest level of the game. Um, and, and I feel like sometimes that gets lost. Obviously you want to know a lot about the game. That's probably a prerequisite now, but there's, there's guys that have gone on to do unbelievable things just because of those relationships that they've been able to, you know, cultivate with their players. And I look back at my coaching career when I was coaching in college and, and I don't think I did enough of that. It was something that was important to me, but I still like, there's times where like, man, did I really have to figure out X, Y, and Z about, you know, 
Yale's power play or whatever. And yep. when I could have been having lunch with a player or talking about golf with a player, baseball or, or whatever it may be. And I just, it, it is, it's, it's all about relationships and, and uh, so cool to hear about Craig Berube um, and, and how he did that with you guys and how it just instilled a, a confidence in you with just getting to know you. <laughs> but it takes, it takes a lot well, of time and effort though, too. It takes a lot of time and effort. It, does. it doesn't just happen. No, and I think it was taboo, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago to actually have a relationship with your players. You know, as the head coach, you were kind of looked at as the dictator of the group, and you basically just yelled at them and tried to motivate them. And now it's different. You know, players are different. You need to build relationships. You need to build trust. And he's a guy that does it probably better than anyone in the game right now. Well, and to add on to that, from the player's perspective, we're talking about from the coach's perspective. From the player's perspective, like, if you get your coach, if you get to know your coach too, like talk to your coach, don't be afraid. I, I, when I was younger, yep. I actually, you know what, my whole career up until probably my last few years pro where I was like the veteran, I was the guy and I was comfortable. I never wanted to go out of my way to talk to coach. If the coach was walking down the hallway. You know, I'd kind of put my head down. I'd say hi, but I'd keep walking. You know, I, I was nervous Same. to have that, to build that uh, relationship outside of hockey in case I ever did anything wrong. I didn't want it to be awkward for them to, to chastise me or, or whatever, you know, but when I became more friends with the coach and I could talk to them on a personal level and a professional level, not only did they get more out of me, like I could give them better feedback about the pulse of the locker room. And for the young kids these days, like I, I always tell them, like, let your personality show. Obviously, hopefully you're yep. a good person. If you're playing hockey, you're probably a good person for the most part, like be a good person, but like, let the coach get to know you, let him see the real you, not just the hockey you, like, what are you interested in? All those things. Don't be afraid because then the coach will be more invested in you and will care about you more. And then we'll do more and want to do more to help you get better. Couldn't agree more. It's a two way street. And I think in our business, sometimes guys are afraid to kind of be who they are. You know, we look at the NHL and we've got some exuberant personalities, but they also take a lot of heat. You look at guys like, you know, P.K. Subban, he's probably one of the most polarizing figures in the game, but he's a Norris Trophy winner, and I think any team in the league would want him on their team. But he's very comfortable in his skin because that's probably been inbred in him. People have told him, that, look, it's okay to be you. And I think that's something that we need to continue to teach to this next generation is, look, be yourself. Be a good person first and foremost, but be yourself because people can look right through the phoniness. I love that. I love that. I mean, it's just, just like what you said about Bennington. Like, he's kind of a shit disturber. That's him he likes to yep. do that. And as long as he's being a good person and it, it's not taking away from the team and it propels him to play harder by all means, go slash Ben Bishop in the back of the leg. Suck it, Bish. I know your buddies <laughs> with him. <laughs> no, I agree. Well, the other thing too is, you know, confidence is such a big thing um, at, at any level, especially in the pro hockey level, because it is such a grind and it's so hard. And I feel like whenever we talk about confidence, we talk about the work. Like in order to get confidence, you have to put in the work, you have to create the habits, and that is 100% true. But I also think the authenticity part of it is huge for confidence as well. Like if you're comfortable in your own skin, if you're comfortable in being who you are, like P.K. Subban, you brought him up, like he's extremely, extremely confident. I think a lot of that has to do with like he's just okay being himself whereas a lot of guys when they get to the higher levels they feel like they need to change or they feel like they have to be some kind of different person to you know whether it's to assimilate to the group or because that's what they think the coach wants them to be or whatever um but uh, would you guys agree like and it's not just the work to get confident like it's it's being okay with who you are it's that authenticity that's so important 
one of the guys that I think does the best job of that, and it comes from the leadership groups a lot of times, is a guy like Joe Thornton in San Jose. You look at some of the characters on that team, like Brent Burns, who's got you know no teeth, a big old beard, covered in tattoos, and likes hanging out with animals. And I think if you just allow people to be comfortable and you as leaders let people know that it's okay to be you, uh, I think it, it really helps the group. Love that. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Who who are some other characters that you played with that were just absolute beauties that make you laugh on a day to day basis? <laughs> oh gosh, looking at it, uh, I think for me it's a lot of the younger guys. You know, uh, I got to play with Tyler Myers his first year in Buffalo, and I mean he drove this piece of junk GMC Jimmy that every single time we came back from a road trip in a Buffalo winter it wouldn't start. So <laughs> it got to the point where we had fans that would come to the uh, parking lot where we flew out of, and they would help him start his car. So, I mean, it's just stuff like that that makes you laugh. Um, going into Calgary, Brian McGratton. I mean, Brian McGratton was pranking somebody every day, and it was just constantly comical. And, you know, what are you going to do to Brian McGratton if he, you know, cuts your shoelaces or something like that? <laughs> just little stupid stuff. I mean, that's the stuff you miss when you're done playing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of being done playing, uh, you know, you wrote a heartfelt letter to uh, to announce your retirement. And, um What's that been like for you? Just kind of knowing that you're not playing next year. Um, have you put some things into place? I actually was texting with, uh, with coach Lalonde, uh, who coached you at Denver. And he said he wouldn't be surprised if you got into coaching one day based upon who you are and, and what you're about. Um, so have you put much thought into the transition outside of hockey? And if so, um, are you pretty excited about it as well? Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, for me, this year was tough kind of being up and down. Obviously it ended in a great way, but you know, I missed out on a lot of family time. So for me, not having to set an alarm clock and I can be able to wake up with our kids and kind of be Mr. Mom and take them to daycare and run them around town. I mean, those are the things that I'm really enjoying right now. As far as what's next, I'm not sure yet. I've got a few lines in the water and I want to stay involved in the game because I'm still passionate about it. I still love it. I just, uh, I just couldn't convince myself to keep playing. And uh, I had a couple of injuries and a couple of concussions here in the last handful of years and I just didn't want to basically jeopardize my long-term future just to to keep playing the game and obviously uh, I didn't have a crystal ball but capping it off with the Stanley Cup I couldn't think of a better way to go out <laughs> nah that's that's pretty good yeah <laughs> is, that, is that bad did I break it is that good yeah <laughs> yeah it'll work did uh did you have your day with the cup already and if so how was it it was great. You know, it was a blur. Uh, you take so many pictures with it, but you know, as the night goes on, you start drinking out of it. And you see how important it is and how cool it is to, to other people. And it makes you appreciate even more to be able to share it with family and friends. That's actually really true. And, uh, I I've heard that from other guys that I've talked to that have won the cup. It's like, it's almost like a surreal day where you've won the cup. Uh, you were a part of it. You were grinding, you were playing all that kind of stuff. But once you get to your cup party and everybody that you care about, everybody that you love is kind of around and you see how proud they are. And then you understand that in your journey, like you couldn't have gotten to where you got into without the people that loved you, supported you throughout the way. So did that kind of hit you in, in that kind of way, just kind of seeing probably your parents and maybe your in-laws and you know some buddies that you had growing up and everybody that was kind of in your corner yeah i mean you see a ton a ton of people get choked up when they see you bring it in you know just how in awe they are standing there looking at it reading some of the names on it and you know i don't think my name will ever go on the cup because i didn't you know make the qualifications for playing enough games but just to be able to have a day with my family and have some pictures that hopefully my daughters appreciate when they grow up is uh, something something that's just absolutely priceless 
Uh, you're going to be a cool dad with those pictures, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. Uh, well, good what stuff, man. <laughs> you're such a tool, Jeff. I love it. Um, well, awesome, man. Well, this was great. I, like so many good nuggets in this episode, and uh, your journey and, and your career is, is one that was unreal. Again, 407 NHL games, and to cap it off, winning a Stanley Cup with your hometown team. I mean, you can't even really write a script that's better than that. So, uh, congratulations on on such a great career. Congratulations on on winning a Stanley Cup, and and again, thank you so much for taking some time out of your vacation up in mini today to uh sit here and talk to two plugs like this so uh we really appreciate it man <laughs> no my pleasure i appreciate it guys thanks for having me thanks butsy all right you bet man we'll you talk bet. to you, you later good thanks you too, buddy. Too, buddy.